We left Paul and Barnabas last week in the book of Acts in the small city of Lystra after healing a lame man and being mistaken for the gods Zeus and Hermes. We saw that they bore this lovely testimony to the reality of God in in the elemental things which sustain and make human life pleasant. If you'll recall, they said God gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Satisfying their hearts with good, with good things, with gladness. And the sermon that we had breaks off right there. And we're told that even with those words, they could barely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. And so we're picking up there this morning in Acts 14, beginning at verse 19. And we'll make two points. They're there on your outline. Uh, the stoning of Paul and the strengthening of the disciples. So... First, the stoning of Paul. After some number of days, the text says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These are the two previous places that Paul and Barnabas had been. They had fled from Iconium after an attempt was made, the text says, to mistreat them and to stone them there. So they basically fled a stoning. They learned of this plot. They fled to Lystra, which is their current location. Again, all these towns are in what is today Turkey. And so Jews come from Antioch and Iconium. That means they come from over a hundred miles away looking for Paul. So we're talking about ferocious opposition to the gospel here and murderous hatred for Paul. So the, the Jews come, we're told, and they persuade the crowds and they stone Paul. Notice how fickle and dangerous crowds are. This is the same town, it's the same crowd, which days earlier had acclaimed Paul and Barnabas as gods come down in the likeness of men. And now, some new new voices arrive, and they're persuaded to stone them. So these malformed, right, but ferocious convictions of crowds are unstable. They're often the mother of great violence. And so the Jews here, they get what they want. They persuade the the crowd, and they stone Paul. And this is not being pelted with a few rocks. They drag him outside the city, supposing he was dead. So you can imagine the condition he's in. God had told the Apostle Paul, remember, after he knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus, right, at his conversion and calling, way back in Acts chapter 9, God had said to him, you know, I will teach him just how much he must suffer for the name of Christ. So Paul's, right, he's the apostle to the nations. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's gathering the nations to Zion. He's gathering the nations. He's fulfilling the law and the prophets. And this is the shape it takes. And if you read Paul, right, there's numerous and and sometimes very lengthy lists in his writings of these extensive suffering that the preaching of the gospel entailed for him. Here's one of interest for our text today from 2 Corinthians 11. So in 2 Corinthians 11, he's comparing himself for argument's sake. He says, okay, I'll behave like a madman. In other words, I'll I'll be like these people that are opposing me. 
They're mad, so I'll be a madman. He says, I'm comparing myself with these false super apostles. Right? These super apostles are slick. Right? They can draw a crowd. Remember, you know what they think about Paul? They think he's, his presence is contemptible. That his speech is no good. That you really can't build anything with this guy, Paul. He has some kind of weird disease. He's physically unimpressive, and his speech is no good. We're super apostles. Look at our success. And Paul says, look, all right, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I'll behave like a madman, and I'll compare my ministry to the, these guys. And he says, I'm a better servant of Christ. And then he gives you his ministerial resume. Here's his resume. I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, Interesting. Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. And here is the reference to the event in our text. Once I was stoned. And he continues. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brethren. This is not exactly a triumphalistic view of the ministry. But he's not done. In toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, in thirst, often without food, in cold, and in exposure. Do your super apostles do this? And he says at the end, just to cap it off, and apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he says, who is weak? Who is weak and I am not weak? That's extraordinary, right? Who has, the, who has the psychological reserves or capacity to live like that? Right? The Christian life is fairly easy if you can keep other people at a reasonable distance. Right? I mean, you'll pray for them. You'll show a little concern. But you're not going to get under their agony or their darkness or their brokenness or their grief. That's exhausting. You won't survive that. Here's a guy pastoring a dozen churches saying, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And he concludes and he says, okay, the super apostles boast about their ministries and their successes. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's the shape of apostolic ministry. That's why he's lying on the ground bloodied with stones. That's the glory, Paul says, of apostolic ministry. And thus, that is the boast of Paul. In just a couple chapters in Acts, he gathers all the elders of the church at Ephesus together. And he prays for them. It's a a prayer of departure, right? He knows he's not going to see them again. They know they're not going to see him. He actually kneels down in the midst of them. He weeps at the end. And he says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonments and affliction await me. 
That's the glory of apostolic ministry. Now, of course, modern ministry or ministry in all cultures and all places and all times is not quite that dramatic or doesn't suffer that way. But nevertheless, we find the ethos, the outlook, the shape of what Paul is teaching us. All people who do ministry know this, even though we don't suffer on the same scale. So here they stoned him and they left him for dead. So they thought he was dead, but these disciples gathered around him and they pick him up. This is the fruit of his own ministry, right, these disciples. This is the fruit of his own labor in that town. And they attend to him and they raise him up from near death. So one, one is, imagine him standing there. One is reminded here of another characterization of his ministry from 2 Corinthians 4, where he says this, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not struck down. Not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this, which is much more than a metaphor for him, right? It's a living reality. He says, Always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus. Paul says, I'm always carrying the death of Jesus about in my body. Why? So that the life of Jesus can also be manifested in our bodies. So that for the apostle being crucified with Christ, dying and rising with him, that was a thing inscribed into the scarred and disfigured humanity of Paul. This is the mystery of the life and joy of Christian existence. We would think, well, this is terrible. Paul says, well, this carrying about in my body, the dying of Jesus, is the way that his resurrected glory and life is manifested. This is the very mystery of union with Jesus Christ. He would soon write, Paul would soon write to Christians from this very region in Asia Minor, and he would say this, from now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These wounds are signs of glory. Rising up then amidst the disciples, Paul says, you can see the text says, Paul enters the city. So among other things, this apostolic vocation he has, precisely because the gospel will be hated and resisted, it takes resilience, and it takes courage. This is what overcoming looks like. He's stoned, he gets up, he goes back into the city. Now, he's courageous, but he's not mad. Right? He has discretion. The next day he moves on, we're told. He takes a 60-mile trip somehow with Barnabas to Derby. And that brings me to the second point I want to look at tonight. Tonight, this afternoon, this morning, whenever, whatever time it is. Uh, strengthening the disciples. Strengthening the disciples. So after he preaches in Derby, the text says, they return to Lystra, where he was just stoned. So he leaves the place where he was stoned, preaches in a new town, heads back to the place he was stoned, and then to some other towns, Iconium and Antioch. So what's going on here is, is simple. They're beginning their journey back home. They're at the end of the first missionary journey, and they're heading back home. They're retracing their steps. And along the way, he's visiting the churches he's planted. 
Right? He goes to these towns. He suffers. The word, the word runs and is glorified. He plants a church. He moves on. Now he's going back. And I love the description. It's very simple. It's very short. The description of the ministry to these embryonic Christian communities. They return to these cities. And there are four kind of overlapping things which we're told they did as they returned. Really, three of them are like the same way of saying the same thing. But let's take them in order. So remember, here's what we're doing. We're looking at what does Paul and Barnabas, what does Paul and his ministry team, if you will, say to churches they have, that they have recently planted to encourage them? The first thing it says is they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. It's a beautiful description, right? Putting, souls need strengthening. Right? Perhaps because they're new, like these were. Many of these souls were new. Or they're young. Our souls can be undeveloped. Or they can be underdeveloped. Or they can be improperly developed. Souls need to be formed. They need strengthening because they're weak. Souls need strengthening because the Christian life while joyful, is difficult. It's exacting. It's spiritual warfare. Right? Eugene Peterson called it a long obedience in the same direction. Paul tells the Galatians that he is in labor with them until Christ is formed in them. There's that form word. Forming Christ in people doesn't just happen naturally. Right? We don't, we, we don't mature automatically. It is akin, Paul says, to the anguish of childbirth. I am in labor. That's a childbirth word. Until Christ is formed in you. Think about that. It is anguish. It is labor. Right? It is painful to have Jesus Christ formed in your soul. It's akin to the anguish of childbirth to, form, to have Christ formed in you. Again, a sort of nominal Christian life is not particularly difficult. But to be conformed to the image of Christ, right, to allow the Spirit to get down into this deeply entrenched corruption and deceit in yourself and in others, that's anguish. And they're strengthening these souls, seeking to form Christ in us. Because we're up against this human nature that we have, which is often recalcitrant. So that's the first thing they were doing. They were forming souls. And if you want your soul formed, right, if you want to reflect Jesus Christ in the world, that's going to be like childbirth. There's going to be anguish involved in it. The second thing that was going on is, and quite similar, again, these things overlap. It says they were encouraging them They're encouraging all these churches to continue in the faith. So the souls of young Christians need encouragement because they're fragile. Because they can quickly fall away. The church has a long history of people making professions of faith and then disappearing. Continuing doesn't just happen. There's opposition. And it requires teaching and nurture and discipleship and companionship and friendship and protection, and watching over, right? It's like having little children. 
To encourage is to put courage into. Souls need to be encouraged because we lack courage. We lack fortitude. Because we often are not aware of what we're up against. We're up against the world with its cosmic seductions. And we're up against the flesh with its entrenched corruption. And against the devil and the powers with their supernatural intelligence. So these saints in these towns of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, they, you know, as would prove true of many down through history, right? These saints need to be encouraged. For all the basic reasons, all Christians need to be encouraged. But also because embracing Christ for them will cost them socially. It will cost them economically. It will often cost them physically. 50% or so of your brothers around the world or sisters around the world are in this situation today. They have to have strength in their soul. They have to be encouraged to continue in the faith. We might think, well, continuing the faith is not that hard. I'm kind of on a roll here. I've been doing this for years. But continuing is hard. Continuing well is hard. Right? Souls need to be encouraged because the call to be a witness for Christ was and is intimately related to martyrdom. Right? The word for witness is martyr in all of its forms. So in one sense, we are a company of martyrs. We may not be persecuted quite the way saints have been or are being around the world today, but we're all dying to sin, to the powers, to the world. We all recognize that the culture can be seductive. Martyrdom is the basic form of Christian witness because martyrdom is witness. It's the same word. So they strengthen souls. They encourage them to continue in the faith. They're putting strength and courage. And this is an art, right? We don't always do it right. We don't always do it well. We may be bad at it. We may mishandle somebody. But we want to learn how to strengthen another believer, a brother or sister, to to see Christ formed in them. And to encourage them to continue on in the faith. They did this, and this is the third thing they did. You might say, well, exactly specifically, how did they strengthen their souls? How did they encourage them to continue in the faith? Well, they did this by saying, now, I want to come to a full stop on the word saying. Because here we have one of those things, I think, which shows the difference between the early church's instincts, perhaps, and our instincts. Suppose we were asked, you have to strengthen and encourage a cluster of early Christian communities. You have a bunch of young churches that you've planted. You have to strengthen them. You have to encourage them. Give me one phrase. Ten words. That's what we're going to get here. Ten. Ten words to encapsulate what you say to them. Right? There's no universe where we answer that this way. I would tell them, here's what I would tell them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But that is what the apostles said. Now remember, that's Luke's summary of their speech acts. That doesn't seem like much of a discipleship, encouragement, strengthening program to us. To strengthen, encourage the saints, that is what they said. So let's unpack it. 
Because it's important for us. First, it's through. It's not around. It's not raptured out of. It's through tribulation. Whether it's caused by our own sin or the sin of another person, we all bear wounds and tribulate. We all go through convulsions and tribulation. Through the tribulations, and notice, through many, not one or two or a few, but many tribulations. So, this tribulation is not merely an occasional trial or inconvenience, though it includes that. But it also includes the idea of woes. Right? Affliction. Right? After the execution of Jesus, the killing of Stephen, and the stoning of Paul mark its beginning. Through many tribulations, we, now notice that, we, Paul's the one who's just been stoned. But it's if he's saying, look, stoning's not just for apostles. It's as if he's saying, if you think the tribulations I am now enduring are just for apostles and not for you, not for ordinary Christians in small cities in Asia Minor, then please think again. Please think again. Through many tribulations, we, Christians, must enter. Note the divine necessity. We must. Paul must, the Lord said, suffer for my name. And we must. Right? To get from where we are today to glory, we are going to enter through many tribulations. There's no non-tribulation way to glory. Yes, some tribulations are more acute, to be sure. But no one escapes tribulation. As I said, they could be, a tribulation could be inflicted on you. It could be self-inflicted. But everybody goes through trials, tribulations. Everyone suffers and needs, struggles and needs this strength and encouragement. So this sounds like grim news, perhaps, to us, but it isn't. We must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. There just is for us the way of the cross. The way of the one, now we heard this in the gospel lesson, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Daily, in Luke's gospel, daily. And follow me, Jesus says. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. Now, in the the ears of Jesus' first disciples, right, in the ears of the Christians that Luke is writing to, this evokes martyrdom. We tend to hear it and transmute it into an American key where it means, uh, you know, maybe uh, putting up with inconveniences or the like, which is not probably excluded. But it's really, really a radical charge from our Lord there in Luke 9. Here's, here's a, a British, new, famous British New Testament scholar named C.F.D. Moore, mid, mid-20th century Brit. He talks about this and he says, this is the text I just read from Luke 9. The gospel saying about taking up one's cross is evidently not an injunction to be patient and faithful in sustaining distress, although it is often so interpreted. Rather, he says, It's a terrifyingly vivid and ruthless way of saying that discipleship means accepting the death sentence. Those who bore the cross were sentenced criminals. This is at the very heart of Jesus' calling. 
He's saying, death with me, resurrection unto glory with me. In one form or another, martyrdom is the summons of the Christian life. So, that means we suffer, right? No one gets out of here without suffering. Sit down with anybody that's got a few years on them, and there's a litany of suffering. It's the product of tribulation. And the New Testament everywhere considers it a a constitutive feature of the age. Not a bug, not an aberration, a feature. So here's the same Paul. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, right? That means we inherit the kingdom. Provided we suffer with him. Suffering unto glory would be an adequate three-word description of the whole New Testament. That's the whole New Testament, suffering unto glory. Turns out Paul, toward the end of his life, he comes back to this stoning. He comes back to his tribulations he endured in this very region of Asia Minor. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3. Again, he's talking about our text. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Those are the very churches he's encouraging here. Which persecution, he says, I endured, yet From them all, the Lord rescued me. Enduring them faithfully is being rescued. It doesn't look to us like he got rescued from any of them. But he says the Lord rescued me from all of them because he endured them. And the gospel continued to go forth. Right? Paul means this suffering doesn't hinder. It rather facilitates the propagation of the word. And then he says in the very next verse of 2 Timothy 3, All, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, if you think this is just for the apostles or just for the early church, again, all doesn't mean literally every single last Christian is going to face the same kind of persecution, but it's a general statement. The body of Christ around the world will face persecution persistently. Paul guarantees it. So that faith and persecution are partners. They're fused together somehow. We don't like to hear this because we're so used to being in a relatively comfortable situation. But the same Paul says in Philippians, from prison, it's been granted to you to believe in Christ. Right? Faith is a gift. But it's been granted not only to believe, but to suffer for his name's sake. The two gifts come together. The gift of faith, the gift of suffering. The gift of faith, the gift of tribulation. One place to see this clearly is the Apostle John. He forges, he introduces himself to the churches of Asia Minor. Churches not that far from the ones we're reading about. In the first chapter of the book of Revelation, he says this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. It's marvelous. Endurance, tribulation, and kingdom are all fused together. They can't be separated. They're all yours in Jesus. No kingdom without tribulation. The kingdom is yours. Patient endurance is yours. Tribulation is yours, as it was for John. And that brings me to the end of what they were saying. Now remember, this is what Paul and Barnabas were saying to the churches, to strengthen disciples. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, the kingdom is present here and now. It is present and future in the New Testament. Jesus has brought the kingdom, so you are now partaking of it. Yet it remains future as to its fullness and consummation. The kingdom is already here and growing and not yet here in the glory which is to come. That being said, right, we all kind of, I think, hopefully have that. Some references to the kingdom of God are, are references to the present reality of the kingdom. As when Jesus says something like, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Boom, that's the kingdom here, right now. Some references clearly are present and future. The kingdom belongs to such as these, now and then. But some references to the kingdom have a completely future orientation, and this is one of them. Paul can speak of inheriting the kingdom or failing to inherit the kingdom. He's referring to the kingdom in its future sense. So here in our text, the kingdom in view is completely future because these are Christian people. They have already, by embracing the gospel, entered the kingdom of God. But here, Paul says, we must enter it finally and decisively through many tribulations. So the kingdom is the coming kingdom. It is the full glory of Christ's appearance. It is a crucial part of what we pray when we say, thy kingdom come. And finally, to strengthen the churches, they did one other thing. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Lord willing, we'll see this later in the book of Acts. But they appointed elders. Right? They prayed and fasted and committed them to these elders. But what I want you to see here is the need for this office is precisely because it's a crucial part of strengthening souls and disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this means elders should regularly be saying what is said here. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's elder speak. So I want to conclude. Here, Paul, just once more. 2 Corinthians 1. Hopefully you can relate to this and find it encouraging. Again, we don't have to be Paul to draw deep encouragement from his experience. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Now, nobody wants to hear that. Not only do we share in Christ's sufferings, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, Paul says. Again, he's not speaking of himself there. He's speaking of the Corinthian church. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in his comfort. Right? That's the beauty of this. We want the comfort part. We don't want to hear about the suffering tribulation part. There's no comfort. There's no encouraging the church without making clear the necessity of this path. Tribulation unto the glory of the kingdom. Right? To fail to be saying this to the saints would be pastoral fraud. This is what they were saying to strengthen and encourage the saints. It's what we should be saying. Because it's true to the reality of life. It's calibrated to the real lives of real people. 
So there's two gospel lessons here. First, saints need continual strengthening and encouragement. They're battered, they're bruised, they're in convulsive situations. We all need this all the way home, all the way home, until we enter finally the kingdom. Now, I wish there was some easier way to do this. Here's the second point. We can't do this without a focus on this sober theology of tribulation. Just try and adopt the counseling ministry that views suffering and tribulation as a kind of aberration that we have to marginalize and get out of the way so we can get to the real encouragement stuff, encouraging stuff. Just try that. Maybe a temporary setback or just a prelude. We can't encourage the saints if we don't speak to them about this sober theology of tribulation as the divinely ordained path to glory. Calvin says this on this text, and I'll close with this. He says, Let us remember, first of all, this law is laid down for us, that we are to suffer many tribulations. He doesn't think it's restricted to the early church. He thinks it's laid down for him in the 16th century. He plainly reads the text that way, right? There's a law laid down for the church. We are going to suffer many tribulations. But, he says, at the same time, let us add this to mitigate the bitterness. Here's the sweetness. That it's through the tribulations that we are brought into God's kingdom. Affliction actually produces the glory. Christ is near us in our afflictions to comfort and strengthen the brokenhearted, right? to give strength to the weary, to bind up the wounds of the afflicted, to sweeten our suffering, to ease our torment. But he can only do that if he focuses us on the blessed hope of the coming kingdom. Try and take up a counseling ministry where the eschatological hope of glory is not a fundamental focus of Christian existence. Because every life ends badly in a certain fundamental sense. It ends at a funeral home. Even the best of lives. The encouragement here is that there's a kingdom to be entered. And this is the way to that glory and to that splendor. Yes, we're tasting that glory and splendor now. But Paul's focus is on entering through these tribulations. So be sober-minded. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Christ. In this way, you can strengthen and encourage one another. How can you do it? You can be saying to one another, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And we say it all the more the book of Hebrews says, all the more we encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. Amen.